Hey, open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 1, and it is such a joy to be back in the pulpit with you this morning. I'm so thankful for the last couple of Sundays, and last Sunday, Brother Todd McMitchin being able uh, to come and talk to us about the Alabama Baptist Children's Home and all that they do. Again, if you are praying, considering entering that foster care journey, uh, I encourage you to even just, if that's an option, to learn more about it. Sign up for that uh, interest meeting in January to be a part of that. And the week before that, uh, our new associate pastor, Brother Zach Goforth, just bringing a great word on our mission Sunday. We've already had 20 people, uh, the, over 20 people who have said that they're interested in going on that mission trip to the Amazon uh, this summer. So between people signing up for a foster care interest meeting and then also signing up for missions, man, we are being a church that is a sending church, which is one of our uh, desires here at Enid. Can we just praise the Lord for that this morning, man? just that God is working and moving among us. But we have so much to be thankful for over this uh, Thanksgiving holiday season, uh, but definitely we are thankful for all that God is doing here at Enon. We're seeing people saved, set free. We're seeing people sent out. And as many of you know, we've been praying through the book of Acts as our staff and our deacons uh, this last year. And at one of our meetings here recently, I was sharing some of the things that God is doing among us with our deacons and, and was able to say, man, it's starting to sound a lot like Acts around here at Enon Baptist Church. And that is a true answer to prayer. So with that being said today, uh, we're going to look at the book of Acts this morning. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. If you can't physically stand, stand in your heart. And the Lord will understand that. So Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach... Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, and he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, speaking to them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now." So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up, and while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus whom is taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the church this morning, Lord, I truly pray, God, for here at England Baptist Church, oh Jesus, would you help us to be the bride that you would want us to be. God, I pray that you would lead us and instruct us, God, that you would speak to your people today. God, I pray you would strengthen me, God, hide me. But Father, I pray, God, that you would use, uh, put your words in my mouth, and God, for your glory, glory in your name today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Today, we're going to pick back up in our series where we left off the story of God, where we've been looking at the overall story of God working among His people throughout biblical history. And we'll actually finish this series next Sunday, and we will have taken the fall of 2022, and we will have looked at all of the Bible. And so we're excited about God allowing us to do that. But the title of our message today is The Story of God During the Era of the Early Church. You know, of the 27 books of the New Testament, essentially all but four of them give us insight into the lives of early Christians or the early church. However, the greatest book that gives us the most historical overview of the happenings in the lives of the early church is the book of Acts. In fact, roughly half of the book of Acts, uh, roughly half of the books of the New Testament were written during the time frame of the book of Acts. Let me give you a few facts about the book of Acts. I didn't intend for that to rhyme. I'm a poet and didn't know it. So there we go. But the book of Acts records roughly the first 30 years of the Christian church in 28 chapters. So again, 28 chapters covers 30 years. So there's a big swath of time that the book of Acts speaks into. The name, the book of Acts, is short for the Acts of the Apostles. See, the book of Acts covers primarily the ministry of those first disciples of Jesus that now are the apostles, the fathers, the planters of the early church and the later apostle that is called by Jesus who is the apostle Paul. And the book of Acts is one of the most exciting books of the New Testament because it records the ministry of Jesus going forth through his apostles in just, a, in just as powerful as a way as it did when he himself was moving and working. The famous American pastor A.W. Tozer spoke about the faith of those first followers of Jesus in the book of Acts. And this is what he said In the book of Acts, faith was for each believer a beginning and not an end. It was a journey, not a bed in which to lie while waiting for the Lord's triumph. Believing was not a once done act, it was more than an act. It was an attitude of the heart and mind which inspired and enabled the believer to take up his cross and follow the Lamb whithersoever he went. Isn't that such a great quote? He says the book of Acts was faith was not just an ending. Faith was the beginning. Is that the book of Acts shows us God at work in the lives of his people. In fact, when I first came to know Jesus, my student minister, I won't ever forget, I said, I knew nothing about the Bible. And this is a good habit for some of you today, if you're in this situation. He said, where should I begin? And he said, start with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read about the life of Jesus and then read the book of Acts. Read about the people of God uh, in the church of God after his ascension. And so today, to look at the life of the early church, the book of Acts basically shows us the greatest historical record of the greatest swath of time frame in the early church. So we're going to answer our questions this morning to overview this era in the life of the early church. So question number one, if you're keeping notes today, are what are some of the major happenings in the era of the early church? Now again, The book of Acts is one of the most exciting books in all of the New Testament. And it covers 30 years. We could preach an entire year of Sunday mornings through the book of Acts and not give it justice. So for this morning, we're just going to give you some of the major, larger happenings in the book of Acts that are essential to the early church. The first major happening of the early church is the ascension of Jesus and the commissioning of his disciples. This is from our text that we read this morning. 
Jesus is preparing to go back to the Father and he gives some final instructions to his disciples that are about to go and found the church. Primarily, one of his greatest moments there is the commissioning moment, the sending out moment that he gives them in the famous Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. This moment is significant because it shows us that from the very beginning, it was always in the design of Jesus for the church to be a people on the move. Now, there are several things that are our responsibilities as Christians to do inside the church. But the first and the greatest responsibility that the church is to have is to be witnesses to the glory and fame of Jesus. The first happening, the major happening in the book of Acts was Jesus ascends and as he ascends, he gives his disciples their great mission in life. And I even love how how quick it happened, how quick that they were supposed to be on the move. The Bible says that as they're looking into heaven, they're watching Jesus ascend, that it's like almost as if he immediately, as soon as he goes out of sight, there's two angels appear and they say, hey guys, what are you doing? You can, hey, I mean, I'm watching Jesus, kind of a big deal. You know, they're like, hey, no, no, no. Hey, he's going to come back one day in the same way he went, but right now you go and do what he told you to do. So immediately you see the church was founded on that, that intentional momentum push to go and bring the gospel to others. The second major happening in the church was the sending of the Holy Spirit and the first great ingathering of new believers. As we saw earlier in our text this morning from Acts chapter 1, that just prior to his ascension, Jesus told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit whom he would send. The Bible says they go to Jerusalem, they begin to wait for the Holy Spirit because Jesus had spoken a lot how the Holy Spirit was going to come and not just be given to them, but to live within them. It was a new principle that was going to take place after salvation. In the Old Testament, you see the Holy Spirit coming upon people. Jesus spoke about in the New Testament the Holy Spirit indwelling people. If you've been reading through the one-year Bible, just about two weeks ago we read Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 27 is a prophecy of how after salvation comes that one day God was going to put His Spirit within us. He said, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. So if you pick up in Acts chapter 2, we see the early followers of Jesus are in Jerusalem. They're waiting on the Holy Spirit as Jesus commanded. And on the day of Pentecost, which was 10 days after his ascension, suddenly the Holy Spirit comes. Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 records this moment. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And here in this supernatural event, the Holy Spirit comes, He fills His people, and then they are gifted to be able to speak languages which were not their own. And what did they do with these languages? They began to immediately proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So by the way, This should say something to us here today. As we say as a church, oh God, we want to be a people who walk more in the power of the Holy Spirit. There are several things that the Holy Spirit can gift us to do. But the most intentional, the most foundational thing that the Holy Spirit does in the lives of His people is He moves them to go and share the gospel. 
Let me say something to you this morning, church. If the Holy Spirit is, if you're claiming the Holy Spirit of God is at work within you and He's gifting you to do all sorts of things, but yet at the same time, the gospel is not something you're being moved to do and you're not regularly sharing the gospel, then you may be misinterpreting emotion for the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is at work within you, He moves you to share the gospel. But then after this moment, we see here that because there's such commotion takes place, that Peter takes the opportunity to stand up and preach the gospel. So in verses 14 through 36, Peter stands and begins to preach the gospel of Jesus to the attentive crowd. And look at verse 40 of what happened because of that. It says, with many other words, he, Peter, solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Yet again, the Holy Spirit comes and is moving to preach the gospel. So those who had received his word were baptized that day, and there were added about 3,000 souls. Think about that. The Holy Spirit came, and God used it to bring about a great in-gathering. In football terminology right here, the day of Pentecost, the, the starting here, the foundation of the church was almost like God started the, the, uh, the, the opening kickoff of a game was run back for a touchdown. Man, I mean, this was a great powerful moment here in the lives of the early church. But then the third major happening in the early church was the beginning of persecution. At the beginning of Acts chapter 4, we see the very first moment that persecution was endured by the early church. They came on the hills of Peter and John healing a man who was lame from birth. There was such an amazement from the people because this man had been healed who was lame from birth that another opportunity was presented to Peter to preach the gospel. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 says, As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. These are the same people who had just crucified Jesus a little over a month prior to this. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening. So again, they've been arrested. This is the first moment of persecution. But listen what had already taken place. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. God had already blessed the preaching of his word. And then we find that Peter and John are arrested because they preached the gospel. This would only be the first and actually, honestly, one of the milder moments of persecution in the, Christmas, in the Christian church. Now, when they're brought out the next morning, they are interrogated, and they are told that they are no longer allowed to preach in the name of of Jesus. And listen to how they respond in Acts chapter 4, verse 18. It says, When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to heed you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and Heard. They were facing death in the eyes by the same people who had recently crucified Jesus. And they're saying, we will be faithful unto God rather than be faithful to man. Now we know from the rest of the book of Acts that the early church consistently faced persecution from this time forward. In Acts chapter 5, all the apostles are arrested by the Jewish religious leaders and they are severely flogged and beaten. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see that a deacon of the early church, Stephen, is arrested for preaching the gospel and is stoned by religious leaders, and he becomes the very first Christian martyr. 
In Acts chapter 9, Christians are being threatened and arrested by a man named Saul who is going from city to city with the authority of the religious council to arrest anyone who is claiming to be a Christian. In Acts chapter 12, the apostle James is arrested and executed by King Herod. And Peter is arrested also and is also soon to be executed, but God rescues him. And then the book of Acts ends with the apostle Paul being under arrest in Rome, which would eventually lead to his own execution by beheading. We can go through multiple examples of the great persecution of the early church. One early church father, Tertullian, said this, that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The early church was founded on the belief and the faith that Jesus was real and he was even worth dying for. And this is still true today. Conservative estimates today are between 4,000 to 7,000 Christians every year around the world in modern day today are still being killed for their faith. However, in the book of Acts and in our world today, it is the faithfulness of the people of God in the midst of persecution that continues to prove that Jesus is real. Every time somebody dies for their faith in the New Testament and even today, it shows the world around them that Jesus is real. In Acts chapter 8, Right after Stephen is stoned, the Bible says that a great persecution breaks out against the church. So people begin to be scattered. But listen what they're doing while they are scattered. In Acts chapter 8 verse 4, it says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Every time the church is persecuted, all it does is end up solidifying and spreading the gospel. The fourth major happening in the early church was the conversion of Saul. Again, Saul, who would later become Paul, the Bible says in Acts chapter 9, is on his way again with authority to arrest and persecute more Christians. And Jesus supernaturally reveals himself to Saul. It says in Acts chapter 9 verse verse 3, as he was traveling... It happened as he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. The story goes on to show that Saul ends up giving his life to Jesus and he too immediately begins to proclaim the gospel. This was a significant moment in the history of the early church for two reasons. First, it showed the whole world that it doesn't matter how far you are from God, nobody is beyond the reach of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Here's a man who was arresting and murdering Christians, and now Jesus has saved him and given him grace. But it was also significant because here Jesus saved and called to himself his chosen instrument to be sent out to the Gentiles. The gospel would go out in incredible ways through the Apostle Paul. The fifth major happening in the early church was the gospel going then to the Gentiles. Since the beginning of the story of God, and we've looked at this all throughout this story, is that God's plan, as soon as sin entered the world, man was separated from God. God's plan was always to bring man back into a relationship with him. And so his way of doing that was creating a special people, the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, the Jews. But that through them he would bring about a savior that ultimately would bless all of the world, every tribe, nation, and tongue. But by the time we get to the early church, to the time of Jesus, the Jews are not looking for a savior to come to bless all the nations. They're looking for a military conqueror to bless them out of their bondage. 
And in fact, the Jews had become a very segregated, very racist people. But here in Acts chapter 10, we see that God does a supernatural event. He reveals himself to a Gentile man, a person who's not a Jew, named Cornelius. At the same time, he reveals himself to Peter, who is on the rooftop uh, of a man's house who is praying. And in a supernatural way, I don't have time to, to tell the whole story, God brings these two people together. He brings Peter, this Jewish Christian follower of Christ, to the home of Cornelius, this Gentile man. And Peter preaches the gospel to, these, to this family, to these Gentiles. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, that as Peter was still speaking the words... The Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to his message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. In this moment, Jesus was showing that, yes, the gospel, my word, is intended, who I am, salvation is intended not just to go to Jerusalem and Judea, but to Samaria, to the people who are not like you, the people who are not of Jewish descent. Paul would end up affirming this same truth in Romans chapter 10, verse 12. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. Can we hear an amen to that here today? And then the sixth and final major moment in the life of the early church was when Paul begins his missionary journeys. In Acts chapter 13, roughly ten years after Saul, who would later become Paul... After his conversion, the Bible shows us a moment where God specifically sends him out to begin his vast missionary ministry among the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now there were at Antioch, in the church, there were there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, remember that for here in a moment later, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. Now prior to this moment, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ had been growing in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. It had been going to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. It had just entered to the Gentiles. But here in this moment, God was about to take the advancement of his glory to the ends of the earth. He was appointing Paul to be his first missionary. And after Acts chapter 13 is that you will see that basically the remainder of the book of Acts is the life of Paul's missionary journeys. It is him bringing the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. The book of Acts would show us that Paul would complete three missionary journeys that would ultimately take him in his lifetime. He would travel over 10,000 miles, most of it by foot, to bring the gospel to people who had never heard it. I've got a map here on the screen that just shows the area. And all those lines... Across seas and across great land masses, several nations and places where Paul traveled in his life to tell people about Jesus. This is a major event in the life of the church because it was the first time that the church sent out a Christian missionary to the nations. And church history shows us that Paul would not be the last. Paul was the first 
but he would not be the last. It consistently shows us that God is sending people out. It is his heart always to send the gospel out to those who have not heard him. My prayer here at Enion Baptist Church is that, yes, we, we lay hands on people and send them out for short-term mission works, for mid-term mission works. My prayer would be is the day that we lay our hands on a family or a couple or an individual that they are giving their life for the gospel to go and serve full-time as missionaries. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. The New Testament shows us two things about God that is always consistently true. First, the New Testament shows us that God is always at work in all places drawing people to himself. Isn't that good? There's nowhere that you can ever go in this world that God is not there working, drawing people to himself. The second thing that the Word of God always shows us is that God is consistently looking for people that he can use to send out. God is consistently looking for people that he can send out. I was reminded of this just in a funny moment just a couple of weeks ago. I was invited to come and speak at the Enion Baptist Church Book Club. If you didn't know that we have a book club, we do, and it's a great ministry. And I got invited to come as the, uh, as the, the author uh, of the day because I had recently published a book. And so I show up, and these ladies, man, they've gone all out. They've got a table there. They've got my books there. And they've got it set up where I can sit down and have my very own book signing. I had a line of ladies, y'all, that were there ready for me to sign their book. I came in that night, and I told Kimberly, I said, you just don't even know how big of a deal I am. And the words of Junior Hill, uh, uh, Baptist pastors are some of the only people in the world that can strut sitting down, okay? So that was, that was me in that moment. But it was funny, I'd never really done that before, and so I opened up my first book, and I, okay, I'm going to sign my name, and, and then I had to remember that my, my handwriting in print looks like a serial killer. So I was like, okay, well, I'll sign it in cursive, you know? And then, hey, what, you got to put a verse on there. You know, that's what you do, sign your name, put your verse, you know? I was like, man, I don't know what verse I'm going to put on there, you know? I didn't want to go John 3.16, you know? I feel like that was a little, you know... Everybody do that one. You know, so anyway, I started trying to... And the first one that came to my mind, though, truly is a verse that's just in my heart. In 2 Chronicles 16, 9. And this is what it says. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support one whose heart is fully his. What do we see from the New Testament? God is always at work, and God is always working in his people to send them to places where he's at work. That can be right down the street, or that can be across the nation. The question is, are we going to be a people whose heart is fully his? When God's searching, surveying the room this morning at Enon Baptist Church, are we going to be a people that live, say, Lord, send me? So again, there are obviously so much more, so many more highlights we could talk about in the early church, but these are just some main highlights, main hallmark moments that I wanted to give us this morning, which brings us to our second and final question to answer today as we prepare to close. As our second question about this era today is what lessons should we learn from this early church? There's so many things the early church can speak to us here this morning, but there are a few things that I want to remind us about today. As your pastor, this is what I'm praying. Oh God, help us to be this type of church. And the first lesson we can learn from the early church is that they were a people who believed. They were people who believed. Repeatedly in the New Testament, we see the entry point into the church was was those moments when people truly believed that they were sinners and that they desperately needed Jesus. And they believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And they proved their belief by immediately following through in baptism. Baptism doesn't save you, but baptism shows us that immediately in the New Testament, true belief led to action. True belief meant it changed you in some personal way. That's why we celebrate baptism. That's why we require baptism to be a member here at Enon. 
In Acts chapter 4, verse 4, at Peter's second sermon, it says that those who entered the church were those who personally believed in Jesus. It said, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. In Acts chapter 2, verse 44, 41, it shows us that those who believed immediately were baptized. And those who had received his word, or those who believed, were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. And you may say, Pastor Zach, that seems kind of elementary. Of course they believed. But the reality is, is that this is not as common in the church as it should be. The reason why we need to remember that real, genuine, personal faith in Jesus is the cornerstone of the church is because it reminds us that the church is never intended to be a people who are united around social justice. We're never to be a people that our foundation is politics and our commonality in politics. Is that the church was never intended to be founded around social constructs and things like, hey, going to church is just what you do on Sunday. It's never intended to be about amusement. I come to church for what I can get out of it. That was never intended to be what the church is about. And it's not even about therapy, making you feel better or feel good, though in the presence of God, he can do that. But the main thing that brings all of us together is that each and every one of us have personally believed that we were lost and that we were lost in our sin and brokenness, but that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and he has saved us. And if you believe that, it changes everything. Hear me this morning, church. Really, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, if you believe that Jesus was alive, that he died for sin, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he is seated right now at the right hand of the Father, that one day he's coming back to receive us into himself, that changes us. We look different than the world around us, and that is the foundation of the church. Jesus is the foundation of the church. The church is not just another part of our world. The church is not us just going through religious rhythms. The church is a bunch of people who come together on our mutual faith that, man, Jesus is alive. We sing on Sunday mornings because he's worthy of our songs. We pray when we gather together because he hears our prayers. We go out and preach the gospel because lost people will die and go to hell without him. We give because God has commanded us that we may again provide for those around us and bring the gospel. All of these things that we do, we don't just do because we're supposed to do them. We do them because we really believe. Man, if there's one thing God could do in us today, what is revival? Let me tell you what revival is. Revival is believing again. What is revival in us personally? It's believing afresh or believing more. Maybe today that's what we can ask God to do in 2023. Oh, God, I want to believe again. God, I want to believe afresh. The first thing we see and we can learn from the early church is that they believed. Secondly, second lesson we can learn from the early church is that they prayed. Again, what happens when people believe? They pray. Why? Because I believe. Because he hears me. From the earliest moments of the church, we see them gather together for prayer. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 shows us that prior to the Holy Spirit coming, what were they doing? They were praying. In Acts chapter 4, right after the first persecution, what did they do? They prayed. The Bible says where they were gathered, the place where they were gathered was shaken. Acts chapter 9, when Saul, right after he comes to know the Lord... The greatest missionary the world would ever know. Why he's still blinded? The Bible says, what is he doing? He's praying. In Acts chapter 10, that great moment where Cornelius and Peter come together and God shows that the gospel can go to the Gentiles. Where do we find Peter when that happens? He's on a rooftop praying. 
In Acts chapter 13, right before Saul is sent out on his first missionary journey, what do they do? They lay hands on him and they pray over him. What should this say to us this morning, church? It's that some of the most powerful moments that happened in the early church happened on the heels of a people who were praying. Man, if we want to see the power of God at work among us at Eden Baptist Church, it will be because we're people who pray. Let me tell you, if you want to pray better, let me tell you two types of prayer. There's private prayer. God has called all of us to do daily. Give us this day our daily bread. If you want to get better in praying, become a people who pray. If we want to be a better church that prays, start by praying privately, daily, regularly, unceasingly. Be a people who pray. But secondly, we need to be a people who pray congregationally or corporately together. What does that look like? Well, we do it some on Sunday mornings here. We make prayer a part of our Sunday morning gatherings. But all over Scripture, you see small groups of God's people coming together regularly to pray. And why is that? I believe congregational or corporate prayer, however you want to call that, it's a different type of prayer. Because when I'm praying privately, I'm praying about me. And that's okay. God wants us to pray about us. Give us this day our daily bread. God, forgive me my trespasses, my sins. God, deal with my sins. It's my stuff. This is me. But when we come together to pray, naturally, those prayers begin to be outwardly focused. Have you ever noticed that? When I pray with other people, I'm praying for other people. I'm praying for the kingdom of God. I'm praying for people to be lost. And it naturally focuses my prayer outward. And that's an important part of prayer too. So let me say this to you today. If we want to start praying better, there's two different things you need to lean into. You need to lean into your personal prayer life. And then you need to have some time where you are praying with other people regularly. i tell you what my favorite time of the week is. My favorite day of the week is Thursday mornings at 5 a.m. with our deacons from our church. We'll have anywhere from 6 to 10 of our guys who uh, can make it because of their work schedule. We meet right here at 5 a.m. on Thursday mornings, and we're just praying for our church. We're praying for the kingdom of God. We're asking Jesus to come and move and work. Let me say something to you here today. We're also celebrating things that God has already done because he's answered a lot of those prayers too. I can't tell you how many great movements of God has happened in history when a few people decided to get together regularly to pray. We prayed at the opening of our service for the next generation, to, for God to move in our next generation, especially our student ministry and prayer. I've got a little girl who's a sixth grader in our student ministry. My wife helps teach over there on Wednesday nights in our student ministry. And we were talking about it recently. It was talking about we're excited that we're, we're having a new student minister come in, excited about all these things. But at the end of the day is that we can't trust. It's not on Timothy to bring the power of God. He can only do so much. It's not on an event to bring the power of God Those things are great assets and tools, but the power of God doesn't come through those things. The power of God comes when we spiritually bind and we go to war for the next generation. So my wife has decided on Wednesday night, starting this Wednesday night from 545 to 615, she's going to start a mom's prayer gathering. They're going to meet in the old sanctuary over there, and they're just going to pray for the kingdom of God to come among our students. If you'd like to be a part of that, come Come join her. If you say, man, my life group, we get together. We have a great Bible study time. But I don't know if we ever really get together to pray. Maybe God lays it on your heart to gather the ladies from your life group or gather the men from your life group. And, hey, if you want a time to get in the church up here to pray, I promise you, we'll let you in. Come and just say, I want to have a time in my week where I'm praying together with other believers. I promise you, church, if we'll commit to do that, God will honor it. The third lesson we can learn from the early church is that they were empowered By the Spirit. Again, we don't have time to go into all of it today. But if you look at the New Testament, the book of Acts mentions the Holy Spirit 40 individual times. If you didn't get a chance to listen to my brother's sermon during our revival time about the Holy Spirit, I encourage you to go and listen to it. He's ugly, but God uses him, okay? 
to go and, and listen to him. But the biggest lesson that we should all hear from the book of Acts is Jesus says, not go be witnesses, but you'll receive my power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then you shall be my witnesses. We need the Holy Spirit at work within us. I'm praying about preaching a series at some point in the months ahead about how to live in the Holy Spirit. But let me give you a, just a few things you need to know this morning about how to operate in the Holy Spirit. First, you need to know that sin stifles the Holy Spirit. Sin stifles the Holy Spirit. Now, we're all going to mess up and we're all going to make mistakes. But unconfessed sin stifles the Holy Spirit. If I am not 100% surrendered to God, then the voice of the Holy Spirit will be quenched in my heart and life. Because the Holy Spirit say, i got other things to deal with you on right now than anything else. So sin stifles the Holy Spirit. Prayer and the pursuit of God invites the Holy Spirit. When I'm praying and pursuing God, I'm inviting the Holy Spirit to move and work in my life. And then listening and obeying pleases the Holy Spirit. Again, it's one of those moments when I'm praying and I'm talking to God. I'm asking Him to move in my family. I'm asking Him to move around. I'm asking Him to give me gospel opportunities. But then when He lays something on my heart or He gives me an opportunity, I need to follow through on that. I've been praying for gospel opportunities myself. Just this last week, I was standing in line at Subway. I walked in, and it was a line almost out the door in Morris. And I almost turned around to leave. And I was like, man, I, you know, this is my only halfway healthy option. I'm about to throw down this week. I need to eat something semi-healthy, you know. And so I stood in line, and a guy came in line behind me, driving for Amazon. His name was Demetrius. And we just started talking, just started chatting. And somehow or another ended up leading an opportunity where I got to uh, ask him if he knew anything about Jesus. And he said that recently he had been struggling with bouts of depression, but he has been searching for God uh, new in his life. And I got to share the entire gospel with Demetrius, got to pray with him, ended up buying his lunch. And then he told me he lived in Hoover, and he said, man, uh, what's the name of your church? He said, my, my, my wife and I, we may drive over there and just come to church for you, but I needed this today. I needed that church. Listen, God gives us those opportunities. If we'll just be available to them. I heard one pastor say, every true, believers know, know, every true believer knows when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Because it is near impossible to describe when you are. But it is also impossible to ignore when you're not. Isn't that true? It's impossible to describe when my heart is full with Jesus. But it's also impossible to ignore when I'm not. Because I know that there's more. And then lastly today... The fourth and final lesson we can learn from the early church is that they proclaimed the gospel. In persecution, they were proclaiming the gospel. In moments of good times, they were proclaiming the gospel. Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, speaking of Jesus, there is no other name under heaven that, God, that has been given among men by which we may be saved. No other name given under heaven by, by, to men by which we may be saved other than the name of Jesus if we're going to be a people who are acting like the early church, we've got to be a people with the gospel regularly on our mouths. You say, Pastor, how do I do that? Well, first I would say that you need to commit to our evangelism strategy here at Enon, which is to pray, see, share, and invite. Wake up every day, pray, God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel today. Help me to see the people around me and not live in tunnel vision. Give me boldness to share, to tell other people about Jesus, and then invite people to come to faith in Jesus. Ask them, hey, would you like to come to know Jesus right now? Or at the very least, just invite them to church. And then I'd also say, come. Come to the opportunities that, you, that we provide for you as a church to be a better evangelist, to be a better proclaimer of the gospel. 
You know, almost every semester we offer an evangelism equipped class where you can learn on Wednesday nights how to share your faith. And then once a month we do Go Tell Tuesdays uh, here at Enon where we're going to give you a, a, a free Redbox movie code, a bag of popcorn, some information about our church, and some addresses. All you got to do is go knock on a door say, hey, we're from Enon Baptist Church. We're going to bless you. And how can I pray for you today? And it provides gospel opportunities. And then lastly, finally, commune with your Savior. What I have found when it comes to proclaiming the gospel is that the intensity of my evangelism is directly tied to my intimacy with my Savior. The closer I am with Jesus, the more my heart is full of Jesus, the more that I tell others about Him. And ultimately, church, when we talk about being like the early church, isn't that what it comes down to? Isn't that the greatest thing we could pray is, Oh God, just help me to love Jesus more. Isn't that really what it comes down to? All this, I'm going to pray more when I love Jesus more. I'll endure persecution better if I love Jesus more. Man, if my heart is full of true, genuine belief in my Savior, then I'll go and proclaim the gospel more. And maybe that's where some of us are. Maybe that's where we need to end this morning. As we pray, oh God, help us to be at Enon Baptist Church like the church was at Acts. Help us to be that kind of church. What's our first step? Let me tell you what your first step should be today. It's not towards a, a prayer plan necessarily. It's not towards an evangelism plan necessarily. God will lead you in all those things. But your first step should be a step towards loving Jesus more. I'm going to ask Micah to come and Brother Ron to come. and As they come, I, I was thinking about loving Jesus more just this last week. And I was reminded of a moment that I had in my life when I was about 18 years old. Uh, I was in a season where I loved Jesus, but I wasn't necessarily white-hot pursuing Him. You ever had those moments where I'm not, not loving Him, but I'm also not really pursuing Him. I was just kind of stagnant, going to church on Sunday mornings, just kind of doing the routine. And I remember at the end of our service, my pastor at that point told the story of Polycarp. I'd never heard of Polycarp before. Polycarp was an early church father that came into being just right after biblical history era. I mean, he was right there in and amongst those, that time frame. He was a pastor in Rome during some of the Roman persecution. The emperor at that point had made a proclamation that every Roman citizen once a day had to light incense in their home and proclaim Caesar Curios, which was Caesar is Lord. Well, this pastor had decided that he was not going to do it. And Christians were not doing it. And so this new religion that was popping up around Rome, the emperor and those thought it to be some type of militant sect type of religion. It was the Al-Qaeda of their day. And so they, they sent a, a whole army of Roman troops to his door to arrest him. But instead of finding this militant man, they find a very old, kind, humble man who invited the leaders of those troops into his home. He sat them down at their table. He washed their feet, and he put a meal before them. He was so gracious to them that these soldiers began to say, man, we don't want this guy to be arrested and killed. And so they start trying to plead with him. Polycarp, just light the incense and say Caesar is Lord. You can even tell us that you don't mean it. But then we'll go back and tell everyone that all is well. And he politely continued to refuse. Well, after a while, these pagan soldiers finally said, well, be on your own head. And they took him before Caesar. 
They brought him into the court before Caesar and they put a stake up in the court and they started to put bundles of kindling around the stake and they tied Polycarp to the stake and they were preparing to light the kindling for him to be burned alive. And they gave him one more opportunity. They said, Polycarp, if you'll just say Caesar is Lord, we will give you a quick death. But he politely refused. They lit the flames. And as the flames started to engulf his body, even amidst all the agony and all the pain that he was in, the last words that Polycarp said from the flames were this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I remember walking down that aisle that Sunday morning. Bill Street, who was here a few weeks ago with Brother Steve Gaines, pulled me aside in one of the counseling rooms there at Gardendale First Baptist. He said, what can I pray for you for? And I said, Bill, I know I love Jesus. I don't love Jesus like that. I don't love Jesus like that. But I want to. And I started to pray, oh God, help me to love you like that. Church, if we want to be the people that God's called us to be, the church that we're called us to be, let us start there. Oh Jesus, let me love you like that. You can't love Jesus like that if your heart's divided. You can't love Jesus like that if you're not fully surrendered to Him. Let me say this to you. You can't love Jesus like that if all you have is religion, but you've never truly believed and been born again. So this morning, Brother Micah is going to begin to lead us. Listen, this altar will be open. If you need somebody to pray for you, and you come, let us pray for you. Our counselors will be up front. If you need somebody to sit down and talk to you for a little bit, man, they'd be happy to talk to you. Maybe you need to come to know Jesus here in these next few moments. You can call out to him right there where you are and just say, Jesus, save me. I don't really know you, but I want to know you. And he can save you right there. Come let one of us know and we can talk to you about how you can take some next steps with him. Let me say this. Urge you by the mercies of God. Don't leave here today having not said, oh, Jesus, I want to love you like that. Would you stand? Father, I pray in Jesus' name. God, would you move among your people now? for your name and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need to come, come now.